Good morning. Little girl was invited to dinner at a friend's house. The friend's mother asked her if she liked broccoli. Little girl said, oh yes, I love broccoli. So it came time to eat. They sat down at the table, and as the broccoli was being passed, the little girl refused. The mother said, I thought you said you love broccoli. The little girl said, oh yes, I do, just not enough to eat it. Do you love your church family? Of course you do, right? I mean, that's the only right answer is yes. However, some may love their church family in theory or in the abstract, but not so much in the actual, not enough to get close. Like the Apostle John once stated, we may love with word or tongue, but not in truth or deed. We may love the idea of love more than the practice of love. Last week, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and anytime we hear 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we hear wedding bells, right? It's the chapter on agape love, Paul's romantic description of how a husband should treat a wife and how a wife should treat a husband, right? No, that's not it at all. As we talked about last week, 1 Corinthians 13 comes on the heels of 1 Corinthians 12, in which Paul talks about spiritual gifts and the diversity of talents among the members that come together to form a functioning body. And from there, Paul launches into a description of the gift that outranks all gifts, and that, of course, is love. And in the process of describing this supreme gift, he answers the question that I have posed this morning. What's love got to do with it? And the simple answer is everything. Now, some of you probably recognize the subtitle as the title of a song. It was Tina Turner who first posed the question, what's love got to do with it? I had the opportunity to see Tina Turner in concert many years ago, and let me tell you, she does not disappoint. She was an amazing performer. But I have a follow-up question to her question, and that is, what's the it? What's the it? What's love got to do with it? And what's the it? Well, it's you and me, isn't it? It's the church. Now, from Tina Turner's standpoint, the it seems to have to do with circumstances surrounding a relationship. It's a rather cynical statement or question. She even goes on to make a, a line in the song that says, uh, who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? Of course, no relationship will ever be perfect, but no relationship's ever going to reach its fullness until one can come to grips with the fact that love has everything to do with the it. And that is certainly the case when it comes to God, Jesus, and the church. What's the it? It's you and me. We're the it. And what does love have to do with it? Everything. The problem is, we don't always exhibit the right type of love towards the it. Once upon a time, a man was on a walk when he saw another man standing on a bridge getting ready to jump to his demise. The man walks up to the troubled man on the railing of the bridge and he says, wait, 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 don't jump. I can help you. And the man about to jump says, well, how? And so the first man asked him, he said, do you believe in God? And the man about to jump says, why, yes, yes, I do. And the first man says, are you, are you Protestant or Catholic? And the man says, well, I, I'm Protestant. And, and the man says, great, I am too. He goes on asking questions. Are you Church of Christ? And the man on the rail says, well, yes, I am. And the first man says, well, I am too. That's great. He says, do you, do you believe in one cup or multiple containers? And the man standing on the ledge or about ready to jump says, well, I actually believe in multiple containers. And the first man says, great, I do too. 
And he keeps asking questions from there. He says, you believe in, you know, paying a preacher? And the man about to jump says, yes, I actually do. And the first man says, do you believe that the King James Version of the Bible is the only valid version? And the man about to jump says, no, actually, I believe that New American Standard, ESV, there are other valid versions. And the first man says, die, heretic. We laugh, but it isn't too far from the truth, is it? If two Christians agree on 49 out of 50 things, they will typically zero in on the one they disagree about. And the smaller the point, the more likely they are to argue about it. I'm not sure why this is, but so many times Christians have divided over insignificant things while ignoring the things that truly matter. And through the years, we have had a worthy goal, which is to be united. It's still a worthy goal. But what we often fail to comprehend is that we cannot be united on every little thing. And in fact, we don't have to be. And Paul talks about this very thing, that we can't all be united on every single minute detail. Look with me at Romans chapter 14. And we talked about last week how we want to read bigger chunks of Scripture. In fact, we talked about that all of last year as well. So let's read a bigger chunk. In fact, let's read all of Romans 14, starting in verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and, give thanks, and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not regard with uh, your food him for whom Christ died. Do not, excuse me, do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. This is what we call tough love. 
It's one thing to love your enemies. It's a whole other thing to love someone who maybe doesn't share your opinions or scruples. That's way tougher, and that's why we call this tough love. But Paul thought it important enough to to devote a considerable amount of time to this subject because he knew that opinions pose probably as much a threat to unity as heresy, maybe even more so. Plus, Paul had firsthand experience with this. You know, the, uh, the Pharisees were masters at inventing their own uh, uh, man-made traditions or coming up with their own opinions and making these self-imposed standards and then, you know, ousting anyone or, or, or exiling anybody that didn't agree with them. Paul was once a Pharisee, and so he is well-versed in what he is cautioning the Roman church about. Now, I want to say this before we go any further. There are a few things that we need to get straight before we proceed. And, and first of all, we need to understand that opinions are not always bad. They can be, but they're not always bad. They become bad and wrong when they disrupt unity and the welfare of the Lord's church. Secondly, I would say this. Somebody doesn't have to be wrong, not when it comes to opinions. This isn't about being able to stick your chest out and say, I'm right. This is about being right in the sight of God, which means that you may have to give up your rights for the sake of the body. Third, I would say, your opinion isn't as important as you think it is. Be humble. And above all else, care more about the brethren than you do your opinion. Something else I want you to notice in Romans chapter 14 is how many times Paul emphasizes things that combat division. Accept. Do not judge. Don't judge your brother with contempt. Don't put a stumbling block in your brother's way. Don't hurt your brother. Don't destroy your brother with food. Don't tear down the work of God. Oh, how the church so often does the opposite of these things, right? You know, I can speak from my experience in the few times I've been asked to consult or my opinion on church matters with a congregation that is going through a split. What I've noticed that is that it's not often a doctrinal matter that separates folks. They may say it is, that may be what they want to hang their hat on, but most often it's something that began months or maybe even years before and is teeming under the surface. And it's usually one of three things, if not all three, politics, power, and personality. One, two, or all of those things. Paul says that we shouldn't try to change someone to suit our preferences, you know, the favorite indoor sport of Christians so many times is trying to change one another. Paul says you don't have to do that. We should change our attitude so as not to offend the weaker brother. We should respect the convictions of one another rather than attempting to revise them. And we should refrain from exercising our rights when doing so will bring harm to our brother or sister. Now, I know I'm going to only validate the stereotype you have of me being from Arkansas, but here we go anyway. You know, growing up in northeast Arkansas, there was a pastime that some of my native people engaged in. I never did. I promise I never did this. But there were some whose neck was a little redder than mine and whose penchant for adventure was a little less civilized. And for this group of individuals, some of which were friends of mine, they would get their kicks by going out into a pasture late at night and finding a cow that was sleeping standing up and they would push it over. Why they did this, I don't know. Maybe you've done this. If you have, I, I probably wouldn't tell anybody. But this odd sport, if you want to call it that, had a name. It was called cow tipping. And in essence, 
Paul is talking about a form of cow tipping right here in Romans chapter 14. He's talking about sacred cow tipping. And he starts with a who's who. He starts with the weak and the strong. To the weak brother, he says these words. The weak brother is the one who has doubts about certain things, who eats only vegetables, who esteems one day above another, who stumbles over meat and wine. An example might be a Jewish convert who who can't get past abstaining from certain foods or observing certain feast days. The weak brother is not ignorant in the faith, mind you. He's been told that God accepts the other brother and that God declares all foods to be clean, but still his conscience isn't quite ready for what God allows. He also, Paul says, there will still be lingering doubts. He has not yet fully been convinced. He, has, he was grieved by certain foods. He could not eat without offense. He was prone to stumble and become weaker. He could not eat with, with faith or a strong conviction. That's the weak brother. The weak brother knows what is right, but his conscience hasn't been sufficiently uh, retrained, if you will, to partake in that which for so long was sin to him. This person is not weak in his belief in Jesus as the Son of God. He He's simply weak in being able to clearly discern between matters of faith and matters of opinion. He believes that some things are wrong even if God allows for them. And this results in disharmony and disunity among the brethren. Now Paul's admonition to the weak brother is not to judge or condemn. And the reason why is because God has received him. You don't need a better reason than that. Plus, the one you judge or condemn is not your servant. You're a servant of Jesus Christ, and so is your brother. And Paul expresses a sentiment that transcends time and that all in the church today need to hear, and it's this. It's not about you. Now, it would be easy for one to make the passing judgment that the weak brother just needs to step it up. The weak brother is weak for a reason, and he just needs to pull himself up by the bootstraps and get with the program. But you'll notice that the bulk of Romans chapter 14 is not focusing on the weaker brother, but rather it's focusing on the stronger one. And the strong brother is one who knows that God has received him. He knows what the Lord has revealed. He is a Christian who is well-schooled in the ways of the Lord. He is strong in his faith. He believes that he may eat all things. He observes every day the same. He does not condemn himself in what he approves. He is a Christian who enjoys the freedom found in Christ without violating his conscience. And he is told to receive the weak brother, not for the purpose of debating and disputing over his doubts and concerns, but receive him because God receives him. And again, you don't need a better reason than that. The strong brother is not to despise the weak brother. He is not to show contempt for his brother. He is to bear with the weak brother's scruples. He is not to be arrogant, but considerate. The strong brother is also told this, not to put up stumbling blocks, not to give the weaker brother an opportunity to fall, not grieve the brethren with your liberty, not to destroy your brother with your liberty, and not to let your good be spoken of as evil. Paul also says not to abuse your liberty as the stronger brother and thus allow it to lead to your downfall. He is told to pursue peace and edification because at the end of the day, the kingdom of God is not about food. The kingdom of God is about righteousness. It's about joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. He who serves Christ in such things is acceptable to God, approved by men, and therefore strive strive for that which brings peace and edifies one another. See, we, we lose credibility with others 
when they see that we can't differentiate between scruples and doctrine. I mean, if you're going to tell someone that it's wrong to whatever, fill in the blank, then you'd better be speaking the oracles of God and not your personal opinion. To use your opinion as the standard is precisely what Paul was telling the Romans not to do. Tim read from John chapter 17 a moment ago. This is Jesus praying to his heavenly Father for unity. The same thing that Paul was striving for among the churches. I want you to notice verses 20 and 21 in particular. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Why was unity such a big deal for Paul? Well, because how could you carry out the work of the church if you weren't united? Why was unity such a big deal for Jesus? Why was it so important to him? Well, he says, so that the world may believe. That's the reason. Our unity is a testimony. It's a valuable evangelistic tool, which means that the opposite is true as well. When we fight and gripe, when we fuss over things that don't really matter, we turn people away. Our disunity speaks volumes as well. The world doesn't want to be a part of a soap opera. If we want the world around us to buy into the gospel message, then we've got to live it ourselves. I recently read a story about a church that divided over putting up a Christmas tree in the lobby. Some thought it was fine. Others thought that Christmas was a pagan holiday and that a tree representing Christmas was a no-no and they didn't want it in the church lobby. And so the debate went back and forth and finally the pro-tree group put up the Christmas tree and the anti-tree group drug it out. The pro-tree group drug it back in, stuck it back up. The anti-tree group pulled it back out and this went back and forth. Until finally, the two groups came to blows. Literally, they got into a fist fight over a Christmas tree in the lobby of their church. The whole incident was recorded in the local newspaper, made the local news because the two sides were suing one another. True story. Now, I'm not advocating putting up a Christmas tree in the lobby. I'm just, I'm just saying it, it's a prime example of what happens when we allow other things to get in the way of what we should be about when we're not united on the things that truly matter. I'll tell you this story to show how stubborn people can be in getting their way and how it can negatively affect the church. And that negativity isn't always confined to the four walls of the church building. I mean, what's the community left to think when they hear about such antics? What else could they conclude but the gospel is about Christmas trees? Or they could reach the conclusion that these people in that church are just totally and completely nuts. Either way, the end result is the same. Our unity or disunity speaks volumes. How we treat one another says a whole lot about the Lord and the gospel. Stephen Covey, with the help of Roger and Rebecca Merrill, wrote a book one time entitled First Things First. It's about time management. But toward the end of the book, Mr. Covey writes these words. He says, I deeply believe that if we attend to all other duties and responsibilities in life and neglect the family, it would be analogous to straightening deck chairs on the Titanic. 
We don't want to be guilty of that in the church where we're so focused on trivial things, opinions, scruples, that we're really doing nothing more than rearranging chairs on the Titanic. It's easy to focus on the insignificant at the expense of the most important. And what's most important? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. What's love got to do with it? Everything. Other than that, it's not really that important. 